like many all over the world, I turned my attention this weekend to the Olympic Games in Rio. The Olympics have always been exciting for me. When I was a child, my family would gather around the television set and watch athletes perform amazing feats with their bodies. My brothers and I would try to recreate our own version of the Olympics around the house. We would swing from the canopy above my bed. We would perform our best tumbling passes through the house. For me, that consisted mainly of cartwheels and forward rolls. We'd fence one another with the paper sticks that you get from the hangers in the dry cleaner. We'd place pillows all over the floor and compete to see who could jump the hurdles the fastest. We dreamed of one day being fast or nimble enough that we would be on the world stage like our heroes Carl Lewis, Flojo, or Mary Lou Retton. But we had no idea how much work and commitment it took for those athletes to achieve that level of success. You see, we witnessed the culmination of Olympians' hard work. Four minutes in the pool, 36 seconds on the track, an hour or so spent executing flawless gymnastics routines. But long before their few minutes of Olympic glory, these athletes spent hours of practice and sacrifice that helped to create their story. In our scripture from Isaiah this morning, God is telling the people of the southern kingdom of Judah and us that the same is true for worship. It is not just the one hour each week that we spend giving God glory. It is the other 167 hours in the week that tell our true story. In Isaiah, God spoke through the prophet that he was displeased with the people's worship. In the verses omitted from the lectionary, God accused the people of being rebellious, and he voiced his disappointment in their actions. God compared their wickedness to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. I recognize here that many of us hear the term Sodom and Gomorrah and we may shut down. Those words have been used to make people feel guilty for who they are, for their orientation. It has been a text of terror when we refer to Sodom and Gomorrah. But we're told in the book of Ezekiel that the sin of Sodom was that the people were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and they did not help the needy. In Isaiah, God isn't talking about people's sexual preferences. God is displeased because of Judah's mistreatment of the poor. And in the verses that we heard, God rejected their worship outright. I have more than enough of burnt offerings. Stop bringing me meaningless offerings. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. When you offer your prayers, I am not listening. Now, before you go and take this as evidence that you should be at the beach and not at church on Sundays, let me remind you 
that the biblical canon reminds us that it is important for us to gather and worship God. We are not to forsake the fellowship of the saints. It's important that we gather together to worship and connect with the holy and to connect with one another. But God is telling us that worship is not limited to what happens in the hour we're together on Sunday morning. Worship is what also happens in the other 167 hours of the week. If we come into the sanctuary for one hour to sing songs of praise, recite prayers for forgiveness, and halfway listen to sermons, but then we go out and we live without any regard for the poor, then all of our worship is in vain. As a friend of mine said, no matter how faithful the worship, no matter how ardent the prayers, how great the music, how inclusive the language, no matter how precise the liturgy, if we leave church and ignore the poor, build walls of separation between ourselves and our neighbors, curse our brothers and sisters, chase our own comfort at the expense of others, and do all manner of evil for the other hours in the week, then our worship was a charade. The people of Judah had made a charade of their worship. They presented God burnt offerings and incense, but they had not expressed love for the least of these. And God made it clear that if the people of Judah did not turn from their wickedness, they would continue to suffer at the hands of their enemies. But even in God's anger, God gave the people of Judah the opportunity to repent and be restored. And he laid out plans for how. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Just as God required the people of Judah to seek justice and care for the most vulnerable in their society, God requires the same of us. When we don't, not only do the poor suffer, but we all do. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that if one member suffers, all suffer together with it. When the most vulnerable members of society are without adequate housing, health care, food, or education, then we all suffer Perhaps we haven't found the cure to cancer because the child that would grow up to do the research is languishing in a housing project inhaling lead-based paint. Perhaps the first person who would find the next breakthrough in space exploration can't focus because she didn't have enough food to eat before coming to school. Could it be that the researcher that can help us clean up our environment loses their motivation when they're attacked on the street for wearing a turban. We don't know what gifts we miss when we keep some of God's children at the margins. But what we do know is that when we don't care for the least of these, all of us suffer. As I reflected on this sermon, I surmised that I wouldn't have a difficult time making this case in Christ Church. I honestly couldn't imagine one person who would respond to this so far with, no, Leslie, 
It's not our job to care for the poor. What I think is difficult is moving from just thinking good thoughts about the poor, agreeing in theory that we should care for others, and going about actually doing that. Part of our challenge is in this moment is to act in ways that affect people's lives. We are called to roll up our sleeves and get our hands dirty. So what are some ways that we can care for the poor? How do we seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, and plead for the widow in 2016? One way that is particularly important this season is to vote. Not just in the presidential election, but in local elections as well. We must be involved in policies that affect our most vulnerable, from the office of the president down to our local community boards. And I won't tell you who to vote for, but I would encourage you to consider your faith as you think about voting. Consider faith that instructs us not to build walls to keep out foreigners, but faith that calls us to welcome the stranger, remembering that our ancestors in the faith were strangers in a new land. Consider the faith that does not teach us to leave it to people to pull themselves up with non-existent bootstraps, but faith that says that when someone asks for your shirt, give them your cloak as well. Consider faith that does not limit us to notions of American exceptionalism, but faith that recognizes that all people, be they American, Iranian, Syrian, or Brazilian, all people are welcomed in God's kingdom. Now, I know that it's not popular to talk about politics in church. It never has been. Challenging the social economic, and political injustice of ancient Palestine got Jesus crucified. But if we're really going to worship God, we must practice a faith that impacts the experience of those we call our neighbors. We are not only to pray with our words, but Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel who worked alongside Dr. King in the civil rights movement, said that we are called to pray with our feet. Get involved in community affairs. Support important causes. Attend rallies. Sign petitions. Make your voices heard to those in power. Find organizations that serve your community and get involved. Visit a neighborhood different from your own and learn about the culture of somebody who doesn't look or sound like you. Be willing to talk to people who have a perspective different from your own. And don't sit by silently as people spew hateful rhetoric that doesn't reflect our values as Christians. And in addition to those things, we can give Give our time, yes, but we can especially give our money. I'm on a roll today, I'm talking about politics and money. (laughs) 
Jesus says to his listeners in today's passage from Luke, sell your possessions and give alms. He goes on to say that where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. What does Jesus mean when he says that? This verse is often interpreted to suggest that we put our resources in the places that are important to us. But maybe, just maybe, Jesus is saying that the giving precedes the caring. Perhaps if we give to the poor, we will come to care for them. Perhaps when we make an investment in those who are often overlooked, we will work hard to make sure that the person or cause we have invested in succeeds. I recognize that there is some tension with this. Many of us are afraid to share our possessions with others because we believe that if we care for the poor, if we give to the poor, then we will become poor ourselves. And we've seen how the world treats the poor. None of us wants to be a part of that. We've internalized the notion that in order for some people to have, others must be without. And that keeps us operating in a place of fear. But God tells the people in Isaiah that if the powerful would worship by providing for those in need, then they would be cleansed, restored, and eat the best food in the land. Yes, when one member suffers, we all suffer. But when one member is honored, all the members rejoice. President John F. Kennedy said it this way and popularized this setting. When the tide comes in, all the boats rise. We don't have to be afraid of what will happen when we're generous with others. Jesus tells us, don't be afraid, because your Father delights in giving you the kingdom. And in God's kingdom, there is plenty good room, and there is enough for everyone. In his book, Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell sides with the conventional wisdom that it takes 10,000 hours to truly master a skill. In watching the Olympic vignettes this weekend, I find that most of the athletes have put in about that much time. So if it is the case that it takes 10,000 hours to really become skilled at something, and we gather together for one hour on Sunday morning to worship God, then it would take us 192 years to master worshiping God. I don't expect to live that long. And so, as the mothers from my childhood churches would say, I have to worship the Lord while I still have time. This week, one hour down, 167 to go.